Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good evening and Merry Christmas. Let's pray before I begin. Father God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for Christmas Eve and for the joy of gathering with your people to hear from your word. I thank you, most of all, of course, for sending your son as a little baby into this world. And it was not a nice world then, Father, and it's not a nice world today in many ways. And yet, Father, you have come. And we thank you. We pray that you would strengthen me now as I preach and be with us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas time, of course, is the time when we celebrate God coming in the flesh as a little baby. It's an open invitation to come to Jesus Christ because he has already come to us. There are few things as humble and meek and mild than a little baby. And the fact of Christ's humility in coming to earth, the fact of Christ's humility in coming to earth, is at the very center of Christmas. But it's also why we reject Christmas in actual point of fact. It's a glorious truth that that God has come in the flesh, has come in humility, and it should be a glorious time of celebration, but often It's not. Often our thoughts and attitudes about Christmas betray what we really think about God coming in the flesh. Instead of delighting in God's presence with us, we can be particularly cold and distant and cynical even at Christmas time. Or if not that, then instead of delighting in Christ, we make it a celebration of gifts or family or of relaxation and time off from work. And as nice as those things are, that's not the same as celebrating the coming of the Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, but at some point growing up, I decided that I was going to lower my expectations for birthdays and Christmas. Right? I don't know if you've made that bargain with yourself. Uh, But I realized that I was always being disappointed by whatever happened. And so I decided to simply lower my expectations. And that, of course, illustrates precisely why Christmas is such a perfect storm. We are celebrating the, ho- the holy, eternal, all-powerful God coming in the flesh as a little baby. And we do so by being disappointed because we didn't get the gift we wanted. Or perhaps because our children were misbehaving or we burnt the meal or have a headache or whatever. There's no end to it. I remember distinctly, um, I was probably uh, sixth sixth grade or so, uh, seeing a music video one one night that illustrated, uh, I think, what I'm talking about, of of, uh, lowered expectations. It was some female pop singer performing Silent Night, And they didn't ever actually show the woman singer on the screen. And instead, 
All you saw was a montage of clips from current events of every awful thing you can possibly imagine. It was clips of horrible wars and people suffering and starvation and disease and there were children crying and adults fighting. Of course, it was awful and terribly unsettling, but it's stuck in my mind ever since. And so what is the point of such a video? Why did they make a video like that? Well, it's obvious. The point is to declare that maybe Christmas is a lie. Behind the smiling faces and the hallmark cards and the presents, there is the world as it actually exists, a world filled with suffering and pain. The cynic, the Christmas cynic, says, you say there's peace, goodwill toward men? Ha! What about this or that? And so they say, the cynics, that is, that tonight we're simply whitewashing the truth. We're telling a great big lie to make ourselves feel better about our lives. We're being duped and we like it. But is that actually what's going on tonight? Is Christmas a lie? Now even if you leave all the cynics out there out of it, we all feel the pressure of Christmas, don't we? Expectations for fun and relaxation are heightened. And we see friends and family who we haven't seen for ages. And we expect all of our interactions to be fun and exciting and cheery. Everything is supposed to be fun and magical. In his Christmas articles for the Warhorn, Jake has, uh, for the last couple of years, made it a priority to warn us about these very pressures that come at Christmas time. Jake and others, Michael. Everything is supposed to be magical, and when it's not, we're left dejected, frustrated, and maybe even angry. And is this why Christ came, so that we can have a special time each year of heightened expectations that will only be dashed to smithereens? Of course not. These things, this dashing of expectations is not about Jesus and about his coming. That's, that dashing of expectation is only a demonstration of our own pride and arrogance and a desire to live without God, to make it on our own. God did not come in the flesh so that we could be cold and cynical and insular and insecure. But how did we get here and how do we get out of it? Well, pride and arrogance is at the center of our bad understanding of Christmas and so tonight, we're going to look at the humility of Christ. Everything about God coming in the flesh is absolutely and totally humbling. Let's begin by looking at the first seven verses of Luke 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So in this passage, we're immediately reminded 
that the Roman Empire ruled the world at the time. How do we know? Because it says that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And in the history of the world, has there ever been a people that liked to be taxed? No, right? And yet, the Roman Empire under Caesar Caesar Augustus was able to tax all the world. And included in that taxing was this tiny, insignificant nation of Israel. Now, if Romans, or Americans for that matter, don't like being taxed by their own government, how much less do you like being taxed if it's some other government, the government of an occupying foreign army, foreign force? Of course, they hated it. Imagine if the United States started taxing the people of Iraq, for instance, and sending the money back to the USA. Already, there's trouble in Iraq, right? The feeling towards America is not exactly friendly and warm. But imagine if we taxed them, right? The hatred and the anger would be very much heightened. And that's precisely what the Romans did. They, the powerful conquering nation, exacted tributes from the conquered countries. Now, last year, about this time, I preached on Matthew 2, and I spoke at some length about Herod. I don't know how much you remember, but it's helpful to bring him up again because it, bring, it helps us it helps remember the context for Christ's coming. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because the Roman Empire decided to tax the conquered nation of Israel. Now, Herod ruled Israel at the time. His father was an Edomite, and his mother was an ethnic Arab, so he was, at best, a half-Jew. He was raised as a Jew, and he considered himself a Jew, though. But despite the way he was raised, he traveled to Rome and convinced the Roman Senate to establish him as the king of the Jews. From the very beginning of his reign, he made it very clear that his job was to appease his Roman uh, masters. And just try to imagine that in our own nation, right? Imagine someone ruling the United States who saw it as their job not only to maintain that power for himself, but also to appease the occupying foreign power. He didn't see it as his job to simply help the nation of Israel. He saw it to his job to appease the Roman Empire. Would we think well of him? Well, no, we wouldn't, right? The Israelites hated the the oppression of the Roman rule. They were weighed down and oppressed by it, and they wanted to be rid of it. And, of course, we would be the same way in in those circumstances. Now, it says that, that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to be registered. Now, is it rich and powerful people that have to be registered? No, right? It's not. You think about draft, right? The draft. Who, who is it that gets out of the draft or gets the cushy job? It's the rich and the powerful. When the uh, United States government issued the first Social Security cards in 1937 and required everyone to register, did that signify an increase in their power or a decrease? Obviously, increase, right? When somebody requires you to register, it means that they have power over you. And this is the case with Mary and Joseph. Imagine that the king of the universe was required to be registered by the Roman Empire. 
It's amazing to think of. And of course, if that's not humiliating enough that they have to travel to go register somewhere, what else happens? We all know that Jesus was not born in a house or in a hotel. He was born in a stable. It's dirty and stinky. And you can imagine, I can imagine, the terror of being a first-time father with literally nowhere to take your wife. You know, it, it is difficult for us to imagine, I suppose, because we live in a time where even if your car breaks down on the way to the hospital, you call the ambulance, and they will come, and they won't even ask you any questions. They'll simply immediately take you to the hospital where, you can have a, where your wife can have a baby uh, in relative safety and comfort. But of course, that's not what Mary and Joseph went through. And so there it is, the bald and real situation. God, the creator of the universe, being born in a stable in the town of Bethlehem because his parents were part of an insignificant nation whose rulers had decided that they should register and be taxed. The humiliation of the situation is palpable. Okay, but then what are we supposed to learn from this? Now, both Christians and non-Christians can read Scripture and agree about the facts presented in the account of the birth of Jesus. Both would agree that the birth of Jesus is a humble beginning for any. Both would agree that the birth of Jesus would be a humble beginning for anyone, let alone for the God of the universe come in the flesh. Both would agree that the very humility of Christ is central to the meaning of Christmas. But both Christians and non-Christians alike have a very confused idea of what humility is and what it should look like. Was it shameful for Jesus to have been born in a stable? Many would say that it was. But somehow, God didn't think so. Humility is often associated with humiliation and shame and guilt And those are not easy topics to unpack. But looking carefully at the humility of Christ here in the Christmas story will help us to understand what proper humility looks like. It is explained to us in Philippians 2. uh, Beginning with verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So first, let's cover two things that are not humility. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul reminds us that Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a slave, and was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of being tortured, exposed, 
and hung on a cross to die. No one will doubt the humility and indeed the humiliation of Jesus' life. But pay attention to verses 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Did you catch that? The whole point of Jesus' humility was so that every tongue would confess that he is Lord. Let me put it another way by asking the following question. At any point in Jesus' earthly ministry, did he stop being Lord? At any point, was Jesus less than God because he was a man? The answer, of course, is no, right? Fully God, fully man. It would be heresy to say that Jesus was less than fully God while he was here on earth, and Jesus never denied that he was. Jesus was God in the flesh. And so we learn first that humility is not a denial of who you are and what you've actually done. Humility is not the same as lying. But of course, we would rather lie than be humble, right? Unlike Jesus, we sin awfully. We sin so that our conscience bothers us, and then we lie about it. We lie to each other, we lie to ourselves, and we lie to God. We refuse to acknowledge our guilt and our shame. When we deny our real guilt and shame, Christmas becomes about perfection and appearances. It's all about getting the picture just right and making the perfect meal. When that's the case, are we helped by Christmas? Is it helpful when Christmas is all about keeping up appearances? Do you feel refreshed? Is it joyful? Is it a relief to us? Of course not. Keeping up appearances is never pleasant. Now there's another form of denial that I think Christians are particularly prone to commit. We also deny the good of what God has done in us and through us. And this is a paradox, but you all know what I'm talking about, I think. Have you ever struggled, for instance, to simply accept a compliment? Or perhaps you've tried to compliment someone else, and they simply shrugged it off or waved their hand and said, oh, that's nothing, don't worry about it, as if you were worried about it, right? That's not humility. That's pride. Now, how do I know? Was it a vulnerable thing for Jesus to come as a little baby? You might say, well, he was God, you know, so God orchestrated everything. But you're thinking too cosmically. Of course it was a vulnerable thing for Jesus to come as a little baby, right? Of course it was. He made himself vulnerable to us, and he did, and he did indeed face our rejection. That's what it means to be vulnerable. You're vulnerable to rejection. And you know what's that, what that's like. Everyone's experienced rejection. Whenever you put yourself in a position to accept the gratitude or the love of someone else, you're vulnerable to rejection, and that's scary. To be thanked and loved by someone else requires vulnerability and faith. 
But that's exactly why Jesus came. Jesus was humble and was willing to be rejected and scorned by us. Humility is also confused with self-contempt and self-hatred. And this, again, is something that Christians are very prone to. It's a confusion that Christians fall into many times. Nothing, though, could be further from the truth, uh, from true humility. Again, I ask the question, did Jesus hate himself? Did Jesus uh, have self-contempt? No, he didn't. Scripture says that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy set before him. For the joy. Jesus knew who he was, and he had in mind the very exaltation that the Father gave to him. He knew that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess him as Lord, and he didn't shirk back from that. But self-contempt is a very sneaky thing, and as Paul says in Colossians 2, it has the appearance of self-made religion and self-abasement, or rather, it has the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but it's of no value against fleshly indulgence, self-contempt and self-abasement, that is. Scripture says that when we give in to self-abasement, we are being defrauded of our prize. Again, that's from Colossians chapter 2. He says, Paul, said, Paul writes that those who delight in self-abasement are actually inflated without cause by their fleshly minds. What does it mean to be inflated? He's talking about pride. We think that self-abasement is humble when in reality it's simply our pride. Christians think that beating themselves up is what God, God wants when we sin. But in reality, self-abasement simply represents a rabid, God-hating arrogance and pride. The man who goes around beating himself up for his sin will not accept the mercy and the grace of God that comes to us when God sends a little helpless baby to the earth. He will not turn away from his own work and turn to God in faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on his behalf. Is Christmas time a joyful time for such a man? Of course not. This man tends to be the Christmas cynic. This man doesn't need God in the flesh. He says, I see the game you're playing. I don't need rose-colored glasses to see this world. I'm stronger than that. I can take it. I'm a realist. And so Christmas is no comfort to him because he will not humble himself to accept the mercy and grace of God to him who is, in point of fact, very weak and helpless. The man, that is. The man is very weak and helpless who says that he's strong and will not accept the mercy and grace of God. So humility is not lying about the reality of the situation and it's not self-contempt. So what can we say positively about humility? Humility begins with truth-telling. Telling the truth about who you are and who God is. Are you actually, in fact, guilty of sin? Of course you are. 
We are guilty of many sins. What are the sins that are especially evident during the Christmas time, the Christmas season? Well, there's guilt, or rather there's greed. There's selfishness. There's anger and envy and jealousy. How many of you children have been guilty of being envious or jealous of a gift that was given to someone else at Christmas time in particular? Right? <laughs> all right. All of us have experienced such a thing. What about you adults? It's not just for children. And what are we supposed to do when we're caught in sin? We're called to confess it, to speak truth about who we are to God. But we don't want to. Why don't we want to confess our sin to God, even when He calls us to do it and, and, and demands it of us? Why don't we want to do it? Well, because of the shame of it, right? And shame is not the same as denial or self-contempt. When we sin, feeling shame and guilt is actually an appropriate response. But we often feel shame for things that are not sin. And so we get confused. There are times when we should feel ashamed, like when we sin, for instance. And then there are times when we do feel ashamed, but shouldn't. And let me give you an example. You parents, have you ever been embarrassed by your child or by a child? right? This is, I think, a common, thank you for being honest, me too, right? You're embarrassed by your child. Have you ever felt shame because of the way that your child acted out or spoke? Maybe you're at your father-in-law's house or something like that, (laughs) and you're just a little bit worried about how your children are going to behave, right? I think many of us will admit to being in this situation, When our child sins, we often neglect to respond in a godly way. Instead of naming the sin clearly and truthfully and then taking swift, corrective action, what do we do instead? We ignore it, maybe. That's one method. Or we might fret and wring our hands. Oh, Johnny, stop hitting your sister on the head with a bat. You know? You know that's not very nice, Johnny. And, of course, we, we act that way with our children because that's the way we deal with shame and guilt that we feel. When our conscience pricks us and we know we have sinned, we're more worried about it coming to light. We're more worried about other people finding out who we really are than we are about confessing and being made clean. To continue the example, we're more worried about what others will think about us, about us, than we are about dealing properly with our children's sin and misbehavior. Now that's the wrong kind of shame, and it's the reason we can't enjoy Christmas. We can't enjoy Christmas because we're more worried about people knowing us for who we really are. We're more concerned about God knowing us for who we really are than we are about confessing our sins. And Jesus is exactly the opposite of us. Precisely the opposite. I can illustrate the point by asking another question. Is Jesus embarrassed by you? By all rights, he should be, right? This is what we think of ourselves, to ourselves. But is Jesus embarrassed by you? Is Jesus ashamed of you? No. To ask the question is to answer it. Jesus didn't come to earth because he was wondering what you were like, right? 
He came to earth because he knew what you were like. He knew what it would take to get you out of the mess you were in, and he wasn't ashamed of you. He is not ashamed to call you brother. Your sin is real, and it's why he wept, and it's why he suffered and died on the cross. And so even though we're just like the child that acts out in the store for the entire universe to see, mom, see this is a common scenario, right? Your child is acting out in the middle of the grocery store, and what in the world are you supposed to do? The whole world is watching your child act out. But even though we're like that very, that little child, just, even though we're just like that little child, Jesus isn't concerned. It don't matter. We're more concerned about our own self-image as moms and dads, and so we cover up and ameliorate the child throwing the tantrum in public. But not Jesus. He comes to us as a little baby, pathetic, weak, despised. He's not concerned about his self-image. He's not concerned about what the New York Times or the Bloomington Herald Times will print about him. He loves his people, and he brings to us the hope that only he can provide. And so this brings us to the point of it all, of course. Jesus came down in the flesh because of his great love toward us. He knows your wickedness better than you know it. He was not ashamed of you then, and he is not ashamed of you now. It is because of his work on earth that you can confess your sin and be made free from the guilt and shame of it. Now, a couple things, a couple points of application, and we'll be done. First, of course, how utterly foolish it is for us to be concerned about who is the greatest among us when we say that we love Jesus Christ. How foolish it is to be concerned about appearances at Christmas time when all the world tells us that's precisely what we should be worried about. Let us confess this, even this sin to our Heavenly Father as sin. And let's take on the mind of Christ. Instead of thinking only ever of ourselves, let us serve one another this Christmas season. Let's repent of this sin and confess it to God. Second, of course, don't lie about your sin. Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. Consider the joy of being made free from your sin. If there is a sin that is hiding that you think is simply too shameful to mention to anyone, it's not. Confess your sin and be made free from the shame and the guilt of it. That's why Jesus came. Now there's a third application that I want to make that often throws us. And it's a tricky one um, because of how we've been taught to be humble by having a false, by lying about who we are. And so the question is, how can we regard others as better than ourselves when we, in point of fact, know that we're better than they are? Am I allowed to say that? Is it possible to have enough self-knowledge that you know that you're better than somebody else? As evangelicals or Christians, often we're told to never think that or even have the thought cross our mind. And of course, there's 
pride in thinking that you're better than other people. I'm obviously not advocating that you have pride. Um, but let me, ask you, let me ask you this. Was Jesus superior to us? Of course, the answer is yes. And yet, he was able to regard others as better than himself. So then, it's obviously possible to do. And you don't have to be a liar to do it. How do you do it? How do you do that? I'm trying to inoculate you against lying about humility here. Well, you do it. It's very simple. It's actually very, very simple. And you do it by putting your energy of correction and criticism at yourself. Because I guarantee you, you are an unending uh, source of problems and sin. Okay? There will be no end to the correction that you need to make in this life. I, uh, in the inquiries class, I, I, teach, I tell people that go through the class, the membership class, uh, that as we're sanctified as Christians, our knowledge of ourself grows, which means that our appreciation, our understanding, and our, need, our understanding of our need for the, for the grace and mercy of God also increases. So first, if you point your energies towards correcting and detecting your own faults, you will have abundant occasion for humility. Now, in others, on the other hand, it's also very simple. You regard with honor whatever there is of excellence, and indeed, as Scripture says, love covers a multitude of sins as well, and weaknesses and imperfections, right? This is how we love each other. We cover each other's weaknesses. And finally, I'll say it, I've said it already and I'll say it again, Jesus has already come down in the flesh. And so, He has already come to you. Come to Him, for He is meek and will not break a bruised reed. Charles Spurgeon said, But tell me that God is born, that God Himself has taken on our nature and taken it unto union with Himself. Then the bells of my heart ring, Mary peals, For now may I come to God, since God has come to me. Indeed. And Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have come to us this Christmas time. We thank you that you have bent low to us and sent your Son, Jesus, not only as a little babe, but also as a man to die on the cross for our sin. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our lying and our pride. And I pray that instead of those things, that we would be filled with humility and with, with, indeed with the joy of Christmas. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.